The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving. Um, I'm already feeling the holiday pounds starting to add up here, and I'm getting a little worried because you still have uh, Christmas coming up. Um, it's great to be back here in God's house worshiping together like this. We're continuing on in our Esther series. We're going to uh, focus on this book today, and then we'll wrap it up next week uh, before we get into our Advent series, getting ready for the Christmas uh, celebration. And so um, I, I was hoping to cover a little bit more in today's message, but I, I decide I'm going to just stay with just two chapters here in chapters 5 and 6. And so the title of the message today is uh, God's Favor for His People. And as we've been doing in the series, the texts are rather long that we're looking at. So rather than reading uh, through these extended chapters, we'll be just looking at different portions of the text as we go through the message. Okay, for uh, the start, we'll take a, a little bit of a review. But before we do that, let's just bow in prayer if we could. Father, even as we have just celebrated this Thanksgiving holiday, we are reminded that there is so much that we have to be thankful for. We confess that so often in our lives, we, we have this posture of just trying to problem solve and focusing on the things that are wrong in our life. Um, but we take pause and we stand still before you to actually remember your goodness toward us and all the gifts that you give us and, and all the favor that you show us. And so even as we turn to your word, remind us of that fundamental posture that you have toward us, of goodwill, uh, because of what Christ has done for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, as we've been um, unpacking here, the story of Esther begins uh, with this King Xerxes, the, the, the ruler of the Persian Empire, who at the start of our story began with this six-month-long uh, celebration of his wealth and his glory, which capped off with this week-long party that he held in his own honor. And so drunk with wine and his own glory, he demands his wife Vashti to present herself uh, before his drunken wedding guests so that they could all stare at her and admire her beauty. And so uh, obviously, understandably, Queen Vashti is very offended by this request to basically humiliate herself in front of these people. And so he, she refuses. And as a result of her disobedience, she is banished from his presence, never to see him in person again. And because the king is now queenless, he basically calls for this empire-wide beauty contest to be held and gathers all the young, beautiful virgins in the entire empire to be put into his harem. Uh, and one by one, they audition for him, and he's going to keep going through these women one at a time until he finds one that he finds to be suitable for his next queen. And because of her beauty, Esther, this young Jewish orphan girl, along with these hundreds, if not thousands, of young women, are swept up into this contest. Um, and despite... The seeming senselessness of these events, we see as the story of uh, Esther moves forward that 
God's hand is in it all, orchestrating things to accomplish his purposes. This is one of the difficult things to believe about God's sovereignty is how can God be in control when there's so much junk out there? Because we live in a broken and fallen world in which, you know, people do bad things and they do it against us. And yet one of the messages of Esther is that God can nevertheless still be in control. Even when everything looks like chaos, even when there is evil in our world. And so by God's will, among all the women of the harem, Xerxes chooses Esther to be his next queen. Well, as the story continues in chapter 3 and 4, we see yet another demonstration of this king's lack of character, uh, granting permission to his highest official, Haman, to basically exterminate all of the Jews in the empire. And all of this horrible massacre that's about to take place is all the result of Esther's cousin Mordecai refusing to bow to Haman. It shows what a petty little man this guy Haman is. I, I didn't really go into it last week, but people have wondered whether it was right or wrong for Mordecai not to bow to Haman. Because on the surface, it can look similar to another story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow to the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. But in that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was very clear that to bow before the statue would have been an act of idolatry, worshiping the king as a god. In this case of Mordecai, in the story of Esther, there's no indication that this bowing would have represented idolatry. In fact, probably what that bowing represented was simply paying honor to somebody who is in high status, which was just a cultural thing in those days. And if you look in the Bible, even men like Abraham and David are shown bowing before people in high positions, whether they were kings or or other people. And it was no indication that somehow that was a compromise in God's eyes. And so the question is, why did Mordecai not bow? And I think The simplest answer is his pride. He simply couldn't bring himself to bow before this Amalekite, this Agagite. And because of Mordecai's stubborn pride, he basically threatened the destruction of his own people. You know, it's interesting when you read the stories of the Bible, there's this constant temptation to make of these Bible characters heroes. But when we really look at these stories repeatedly, what we find is their weaknesses and their failures. And so what, it, what happens often is that God will accomplish his mission in spite of these characters, not necessarily through them. They often present themselves more like antiheroes than heroes. And I think Esther was no different. The last message, we saw how reluctant Esther was to get involved in the whole situation. After years of living in luxury in the king's palace and hiding her Jewish identity, she had basically forgotten who she was. And she, frankly, didn't want to risk losing it all to try to save her own people. So I can't do anything. Don't ask for my help. There's nothing I can do here. But Mordecai, her cousin, helps her to come to her senses. He says, who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. In other words, this was a defining moment for Esther when she finally understood the purpose behind everything that was happening 
in her life up to that point. Basically to recognize that God had made her queen, not so that she could indulge in a life of excess and luxury, of pleasure, but so that she could save her people. And with this newly found clarity on the purpose of her life, she decides to fast for three days and three nights and asks the other Jews in Susa to fast on her behalf as well and says, afterwards, after this fast is done, I will go before the king uninvited and try to save my people. Well, as we pick up the story from the end of chapter 4, Esther and her uh, court have finished their fast, and she is now ready to approach the king. And as I pointed out in the last message, there's a lot going against her in this mission. First, not even the queen, no one by law, is allowed to approach the king uninvited. Archaeologists have actually dug up uh, reliefs carved in stone from this period in Persia that shows the king sitting on his throne, and then right next to the king is an axe man. <laughs> okay? And the implication is anyone that comes to the king uninvited would be decapitated immediately. This is a high-stakes game here. Secondly, she's got to convince the king to change his own law that he signed with his own signet ring. And that would have been an incredibly embarrassing situation for him. Third, she is asking the king to turn against his highest official, Haman, his right-hand man. And on top of it, Esther says, it's been over a month since the king has asked for my presence. So she's wondering, maybe he's moved on to other women in his harem. Maybe I've fallen out of favor with him. He doesn't love me anymore. But finding courage and a renewed sense of God's presence and mission for her, she decides to risk it all and says, if I perish, I perish. Uh, I think this is such an essential element of faith, is that so often, before we will move toward any direction for God, we want everything to be spelled out perfectly. We want all the guarantees, but by definition, this is what faith involves, is often a step into the unknown where the outcome is not guaranteed. This is the courage that is needed to live a life of faith. It's great when we look in retrospect and can celebrate and testify to all the good things that God did when we did that. But the truth is, on the other side of it, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if it's all going to work out perfectly, do you? But this is what faith is all about, is stepping into that darkness, uncertain what the outcome will be. And that's what Esther was willing to do. You know, I shared about how as a missionary in Kenya... I had a chance to uh, get to know the, one of the former presidents of Kenya, this guy named Daniel Moy, who basically helped us in a really huge way to build the nursing school that we were building in Kapsawar, where I was working. And whenever we would visit him at his weekend estate, there were these, these interesting sort of series of waiting areas that he had to go to, because he always had this long entourage of people that was visiting him all the time. And you would basically be ushered from one waiting area to the next, and the fir- every time you moved to the next waiting room, you knew that you were getting closer to meeting with the guy, you know? And these rooms were furnished in an unbelievable way. It looks, some of the rooms almost look like they come out of Versailles or something like this, sort of ridiculously, you know, ornate furniture and everything. And then there was 
always these men walking around with walkie-talkies and these Italian suits uh, looking very important and soldiers walking around with assault rifles. And so it's a very intimidating atmosphere when you're at his compound. And then you get to this one last room before you go into the room where you meet him. And there is this white chair. I think I shared this before, but there is this white chair that's so ridiculously large. I think the back of it goes like 10 feet high that you can only describe it as a throne. And then there's these tiny little chairs that surround it, and that's where you're asked to wait. And it's a, it's a, I've never seen President Moy actually sit in that chair, but none of us ever sat in that chair because I think it was a very clear message that the man that you're about to meet is this really important guy, you know? So by the, especially during my first visits with him, by the time I got to that room, I'm like trying to talk myself down from this like rapid heart rate, you know? I'm going, he's just the man. He's just the man. But you see the throne and you're like, he's not just the man. He's not just an ordinary guy. I think that must have been a bit of what it was like for Esther to go before King Xerxes, except I think exponentially more frightening. Historians tell us that the throne room in Susa was intimidating, to say the least. They had columns that shot up 40, if not 60 feet high. Now, that is insane if you think about it. 60 foot high columns in his throne room, draped with the finest material. And all of that was designed to communicate one message to anyone who visited the king. This person that you're about to meet is incredibly powerful, incredibly important. In Esther chapter 5, verse 1, it says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. It's interesting that Esther put on her royal robes for this meeting. This is going to be one of the first demonstrations of her shrewdness. Um, If we could advance the slide, actually. Um, She is clearly using whatever leverage she has within her power to try to influence the queen, the king. Basically, she's sending this subtle message to King Xerxes, don't forget I'm the queen. Now, Esther is going to demonstrate the shrewdness several more times before the story is done. Another thing that she does, another detail we're given is that she doesn't enter the, approach the throne immediately, but she sort of stands at the back at the entrance and waits. And this is also a calculated move. It's a sign of respect and honor to the king. There is this interesting interplay throughout the Bible between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And of course, there are times when we simply have to let go and trust God, especially in those situations where we recognize we're utterly helpless to be able to do anything. But to believe that God is in control doesn't translate into we simply sit back and do nothing and say, well, God will take care of everything. Throughout the Bible, we see people who very ardently believed in God's sovereignty and yet used their God-given abilities, their wisdom that God had granted them to partner with God in the work that he is accomplishing. And I would say that that is true for your life and mine as well. Even though we may believe that our life is in God's hands, 
It doesn't mean we just sit by and do nothing. But we're invited to participate in the work that God is doing. And so, you know, Esther had just fasted three days and three nights. She could have come with her messy hair and pajamas and said, well, if I perish, I perish. God is in control. He can fix it. But she didn't do that. She thought about, what is it that I ought to do here to give me the best chances of finding favor in the king's eyes? And so she puts on her royal robes and comes before him. And it says in verse 2, when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Whatever fears that Esther may have had as she approached the throne uninvited was quickly dispelled by the king's reaction. When it says he was pleased with her, it literally means that his eyes were filled with favor toward her. And in order to demonstrate his goodwill, he extends his golden scepter toward her, which was basically a message that I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to have my axe man chop your head off, but you can approach me unharmed. In verse 3 it says, Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. This guy's in a good mood that day, okay? Um, It was, of course he didn't mean this literally, but it, it was basically like an expression to say, well, what do you want, honey? Ask me anything, and it's yours. Just, just name it, and I'm going to do it for you. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that Esther could have made the request right then. and said, my people are going to be killed in a few months. Would you please not do that? But she again demonstrates the shrewdness in the way she handles the king. Verse 4, it says, If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Now, she knows that her request is going to stretch the limits of her relationship with the king. And so rather than asking right away what she wants, she starts with an invitation to a party that she wants to throw for him and for Haman. And so both the king and Haman attend Esther's banquet. And once again at the banquet, the king asks, what is it that you want? Just ask me and it's yours. But in verses 7 to 8, Esther replies, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. She's playing a game with him, isn't she? Instead of making a request known at the second time the king is asking, she instead invites the king and Haman to a second banquet the following day. And so it immediately raises the question, what in the world is Esther doing here? I think she is again showing this shrewdness and how she is approaching the king. Have you ever uh, bought a car? And you all know what happens at that final stage when you are getting deep into the negotiation, right? What happens? The guy always leaves, doesn't he? And he says, well, this is a tough number. I got to go talk with my manager, right? 
And then he leaves for like 15 minutes, an uncomfortably long time. And he says, let me go crunch the numbers and let me talk to my boss, right? Well, this is one of the worst kept secrets in the whole auto sales industry, right? Is very rarely are they talking to their manager. Most often they say they're going out for a cup of coffee, right? Why do car salesmen do this? Well, it's a psychological technique, right? They know that the longer they could drag out the negotiation, the more emotionally invested you get in buying that car. So that when they come back, the longer they could keep you in his office, statistically, the more likely you are to walk out of that room having signed the papers, right? Well, I'm not saying that that's what Esther was doing, okay? I don't think that was necessarily her particular tactic, but her wording to the king is actually very insightful. It's, un- it's very important. It says, what she basically says to him is this. Listen, king, if you are serious about granting my request, then come back tomorrow for my second party. In other words, what Esther is doing very shrewdly is she is tying his presence at the party to his commitment to do whatever she asks, right? And so in essence, what she's doing is this. By, showing, by just the virtue of showing up the next day, you are confirming your commitment to me that you're going to do whatever I ask of you. Right, king? You go, yeah, fine. I'll be there tomorrow for your second party, and I'll do whatever you ask. So in a lot of ways, it looks like Esther is basically engineering this based on her own manipulation of the situation. But then something really interesting takes place that arguably has a far greater impact on the way the king is going to respond to her request. Even before the next 24 hours up and the second party is held, a series of important events unfold. And it starts in verse 9, where it says, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he was eleva- had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she, g- she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that you, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. (laughs) So Haman leaves Esther's first banquet in high spirits, totally flattered that the king and he were the only guests at this exclusive party. But as soon as he sees Mordecai at the gate refusing to bow, all of that joy is replaced with rage. You get a sense of what a small and childish man this guy Haman was, right? And so he's just stewing in this anger going, I don't know what to do with this guy. You know, and so his wife and his friends advise him, look, this is what you do. You build, you construct a stake, a really high pole. And what you do is you take Mordecai and you impale him on it. <laughs> 
and kill him. Well, this idea really appealed to Haman. And so he sets about work building this stake, this long wooden pole on which he's going to kill Mordecai. What follows then is this series of really incredible coincidences. In chapter 6, verse 1 to 2, it says, That night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded that there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So coincidentally, that night, the king has this bout of insomnia. And of all the things that he could have done, what he has done is that he orders his officials to pull out the book chronicling all of his acts of his reign and have it read to him. It must have been like reading the phone book. You know? So he said, maybe that's going to help me fall asleep if they read this totally boring book. And just by coincidence... It happens that the section they turn to is about this account of Mordecai thwarting an assassination attempt on the king's life. And, Morde- and Xerxes is hearing the story, and he says, what is this? <laughs> about this guy that saved my life on this assassination attempt? And he says, what was done for this guy? <laughs> like, how did I reward him? And the official says, I don't know what happened here, but you didn't do anything for this guy. And then, by coincidence, right at that very moment, Haman shows up. He's just finished building the stake on which he wants to kill Mordecai, and he's coming to ask the king for permission to kill him now. So the story continues in chapter 6, verse 6. And it says, when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, wink, wink, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So the king asked this cryptic question, what should be done for the one I really, really want to honor? And Haman is such a self-absorbed guy that the king thinks that he thinks the king is talking about him in code. And so he conjures this elaborate king for a day fantasy, right? You can imagine the utter shock when the king says, that is an awesome idea. Do it for Mordecai. This very guy that Haman had come to ask to execute that very morning. You can imagine how humiliated Haman was as he walked through the streets of Susa saying, this is the man the king wants to honor. The guy that he hated more than anyone else in the world. Now, what is the lesson for us in all of this? In this Esther series, 
I've been using this term God's sovereignty a lot. To say that God is sovereign means that he is in total control of everything that happens in our world. And that everything happens according to his plan. That's, in essence, the definition of God's sovereignty. God is in control of everything. But we need to go a step further to understand the full message that God is in control as it is presented to us in this book of Esther. There's another term that we need to talk about, which is not only God's sovereignty, but also God's providence. God's providence. The providence of God is God's control over all things expressed in his care and protection over his people. In other words, God controls all things in a way that shows his goodness and favor toward those he loves. To believe in the providence of God doesn't mean that everything will always go the way we want it to. That's not what the providence of God says. Nor does it mean that God will never allow us to go through difficulty. But it does mean that as his people, God is fundamentally for us. And that everything that he allows to happen in our life has a higher purpose for the accomplishment of his glory and our good. And one of the ways that this providence is demonstrated is in this remarkable timing of God that shows up in the way that he orchestrates the events of our life. As I mentioned through every message of the series, God's name is never mentioned even once in this entire book of Esther. But his hidden hand is revealed most powerfully, I would argue, in the unbelievable timing of the events that unfold in this story. Of what appear to be nothing short of miraculous coincidences that line up to allow the things that happen in this story. This is one of the ways that God shows his hand in our life is the way that he arranges in his own power for the circumstances to unfold in our life. I've shared this story with you before, but as a fourth-year medical student, I committed myself to teaching a number of classes in my church and then also leading the summer mission program that was going to Africa and other places around the world for that summer. But in order for me to honor those commitments, I needed a very specific schedule for my clinical rotations. Otherwise, I simply wasn't going to be able to do it. Well, our school operated on a lottery system, like many medical schools do, to determine the rotation schedule for fourth-year medical students uh, based on this lottery system. And there were almost 60 students in my class. But when the lottery came around, I was given number one lottery pick. And I was able to arrange my schedule exactly as I needed it to be. Now, you can look at it and say, well, was that coincidence or was that God? You can say, you got a one in 60 shot. It's, it's not unthinkable. Um, let me tell you another story. When I was a missionary in Kenya, uh, it just so happened that I was in Nairobi on a particular weekend in, in the capital city of Kenya doing some business for the hospital. And during that visit, I just happened to run into a doctor friend of mine who was also a missionary 
out there. And we got into this conversation. And in that conversation, he told me of another missionary doctor by the name of Scott Shannon who was doing some amazing things in Africa. And, you know, we're just talking about that. And then later on that day, he contacts me and says, guess what? Scott is in town right now in Nairobi. And he said, do you want to meet him? Because I think you two would get along really well. Well, I didn't really see the point in taking that meeting, and so I was going to decline it, but for some reason, I don't know, I just felt this moving in my heart to accept this invitation. So I said, yeah, I'll meet with this guy. So I accepted that invitation, and next thing I knew, I was in my car driving to a local cafe to have lunch with this guy. I got to tell you, at first, it felt really awkward. It felt like we were on a blind date set up by a mutual friend, you know? Like, hey, I'm Steve. You're Scott. Goes, All right, you know. And then we started talking. But almost immediately, we felt this kindred spirit. And we made this really deep connection of our hearts together. And it turns out that Scott was in charge of this Sudanese physician reintegration program in which these doctors that were trained in Cuba, these lost boys of Sudan, were given an opportunity to study medicine in Kenya, in, in Cuba, by Fidel Castro. But then they immigrated to Canada where they were never allowed to practice medicine because their degree came from Cuba. And so for almost 20 years, they worked as factory workers and re- in retail in these minimum wage jobs. But suddenly, southern Sudan became a nation again after decades-long civil war. And in southern Sudan, they had one doctor for every 200,000 people. It's an unbelievable ratio, one of the worst in the entire world. 50 doctors in the entire country. And Scott said, we are looking for hospitals where we could retrain these Sudanese doctors and return to southern Sudan to help this war-ravaged country. And it turned out that the hospital where I was medical director was perfectly fit the profile of the hospitals that he was looking for. And we ended up making that connection, and out of that friendship that he and I developed, our hospital, Capsuar, ended up training a third of all of the doctors that became part of this reintegration program, sending them there. Now, you can look and say, was that just coincidence? that I happened to run into this doctor who happened to bring up this guy, Scott, who happened to be in Nairobi at that very moment, and we happened to have lunch together so that these doctors could be trained to return to Sudan. Well, yeah, I mean, statistically, I guess you could say it's not out of the realm of possibility. But what I would argue is there are so many more stories like this that I could share. And I know, talking with many of you, many of you have these kind of stories as well. Is the hand of God the only possible explanation for the way these things unfold? Of course not. But through faith, what I am saying is we are invited to consider the ways in which God may be arranging the circumstances of your life that are unfolding right before your eyes. And it's an invitation to ask yourself what might be the deeper purpose for the timing of these events. Now, There is a word of caution here. Whenever we try to look at these, quote, coincidences and say, this is the hand of God, I think Scripture always has to rule the day, okay? I mean, 
you know, you may feel led by God to date this guy because just when you turn on the radio, you heard his name, and then when you turn on the TV, his name came up again. But if the guy is not right for you, he's not right for you, okay? And any coincidence shouldn't override scriptural wisdom. Um, I, I also want to say this. is Some of you hear these kind of stories, and I've heard this from some of you. It says, yeah, I hear these stories all the time of these amazing coincidences, and that never happens to me. I mean, am I cursed? Or why don't these cool things happen to me ever? And one of the things that I do want to say is, listen, there are those amazing moments when you're going to Target and the place is packed and the guy at the very front row just comes out and you take the spot, right? Or there's this coat that you've wanted in the clearance aisle and you go back week after week and then it finally reaches 90% off and you buy the coat, right? And you say, <laughs> God is good, you know? He protected that coat. He put a shield of protection so that only I would get that coat at this amazing deal. Now, that could be God. That could be God. But when you see this amazing timing of God in orchestrating events, I I think there's a danger that we view this as somehow like a divine Santa Claus. Like, oh, he's just there to make me live a charmed life, you know? But what we have to recognize is often these things are happening as people are on mission for God. And it is precisely in our willingness to be used by him and taking those steps of faith that Esther was doing and Mordecai was doing that often God does his greatest work. I don't think that it's an accident that some of the most powerful stories that I have to share of God's hand come from my time in Africa. When in so many ways I felt like I was laying it all on the line for his kingdom. And so many times risking it all for the sake of the work he was calling us to do. And yet some of those moments in Africa were some of the most powerful of God demonstrating his hand. And what I simply want to say to you is, maybe you could see this this morning as an invitation by God to you. To say, take a step of faith. Go out on a limb. And look around and see what he may be inviting you to do for his kingdom. How he might want to use you to touch the life of someone. What I'm actually suggesting is maybe some of these opportunities have been orchestrated, but your frame of mind is not in a place where you even recognize them because those aren't even the opportunities you're looking for in your life. Because you, like Haman, are just so self-absorbed. What's in it for me? How do I gain from this? Where is my angle? Where's the angle for me? And what God is saying, I want to use you for the nations. I want to use you to bless your neighbors, your coworkers, the people around you. And I'm moving in your life. I'm doing some pretty incredible things in you. But you're just not seeing it because those aren't the opportunities you're praying about and looking for. I want to challenge you that if you're willing to take that step of faith, God may do some pretty incredible things in your life, and you're going to have a testimony to share with others. God shows his providence over us not only through his perfect timing, but also by the way he changes the hearts of those around us. Esther showed courage through her willingness to approach the king uninvited. But what would that act of faith and courage have accomplished if the king didn't show favor toward her? It wouldn't have done anything. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. 
Exodus chapter 6, verse 22 says, For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Syria, Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The message of the Bible is clear. God and God alone can change our hearts and accomplish his will. He can even change the heart of the king. Xerxes was the most powerful man in the world, and yet God showed who was truly in control. Whether it was through a heart of favor toward Esther or a sleepless night where he couldn't get his rest. I've also shared this story with you before, but I thought it was appropriate in this message. You know, when we were missionaries in Africa, from the very start of our medical mission work there in Kenya, I saw the devastation firsthand of this AIDS epidemic that was destroying this continent. And I had to watch helplessly as one AIDS patient after another was dying in my hospital. And for six months, I prayed that God would make a way for us to provide the life-saving drugs that I knew was available out there for these patients that were in dire need. And then, after the six months, one day, I got a call from this organization called CHOC, which stands for the Christian Health Association of Kenya. And they called us and said, Hey, we just wanted to know, do you want to start an AIDS clinic in your hospital? Because they had just received funding to start four AIDS programs in the hospitals that they represented. Now, they represent over 400 hospitals. And yet, they called us to be one of the four. Later on, when the program director came to Capsuar to do, give us orientation before we received the money, <coughs> I asked them in a private moment, why did you choose Capsuar? Because the other three hospitals were much larger than ours. And the program director very candidly said, I really don't know why you were chosen, because technically you guys didn't meet the criteria for the grant. But he said in the planning meeting, this guy Samuel Mwenda, Dr. Samuel Mwenda, who's the general secretary of CHOC, kept insisting Capsuar has to be one of the four hospitals. (laughs) None of us even knew the guy, okay? We didn't even know who he was. But he kept saying, I don't care what you do, but just make sure Capsuar is one of the four. And when he shared that, I shared the prayer that I've been giving to God for the last six months. And we just both kind of stared at each other in that moment and said, huh. (laughs) We were just kind of looking at each other. This is so weird. This is the first group of nurses and pharmacists and lab technicians and community nurses that were trained under this grant to run our HIV AIDS clinic, which even today is saving the lives of hundreds of people there in Capsuar who are suffering from AIDS and HIV. We're all going to encounter situations that cannot be solved unless God moves the heart of somebody. Maybe it's not about AIDS in Africa, but maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a work situation under a very difficult employer. I don't know. But what I'm saying is we worship a God that changes people's hearts. And it is precisely in these times of helplessness that when we really 
understand this doctrine of God's providence and his sovereignty, that the natural reaction is to turn to prayer and fasting, like Esther and the Jews did that day. Only God can do what we are incapable of doing. Fasting and prayer are an expression of our total dependency on God and a belief that he is good to us and that he will work on our behalf. The story ends in chapter 6 like this in verse 12 to 14. After Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Haman and his family and his friends are freaking out. They're saying, these things that have happened in the last 24 hours cannot just be random coincidence. Something is afoot here. And the conclusion they come to is, Haman, you picked the wrong enemy, dude. (laughs) And now you have made God your enemy. And he is against you. Your fate is sealed. It's over for you. This is not looking good at all. We talk about this favor of the Lord. What we're talking about is God's promise toward his people. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of his commitment to us. Because of what Christ has done for us. I think often we struggle and, you know, when things are going good, we say God is for us. And then when we're going through hard times, we say, I don't know where God went. It's like he left the room. But one of these messages of this story of Esther tells us that this idea of God's sovereignty and his providence is God is always for you, not because you deserve it, but because of his grace, because of what Christ has done for us. That's why Paul can say with confidence in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's why the right Hebrews could say in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray.